have appreciated our time here, and I wanted to take the time to say that I appreciate your pastor and his wife and the ministry that they have here. It's, it's not easy to leave family and friends in South Carolina, and uh, when you're used to that kind of thing, and, and uh, the topography is very different, and to come uh, out west, but they love you. They love the people of Fernley and Fallon and whoever else comes <laughs> from around the area. And to me, that's obvious. Uh, to sacrifice time with family. I mean, obviously you have family here, but not all their family is here. And uh, I've always respected him. And I say him, I respected both of them. He was the head of maintenance. Uh, you were the head of the nursery, right? Anything else? Sarah's daughters, those kind of things, different ministries of the college. And uh, he was a teacher of mine, taught basic maintenance and repair. And uh, I still remember some of the things that, that he taught me and some of the things that we did and some of the goofballs we had in class and trying to uh, navigate uh, not getting injured by them and those kind of things. But uh, what you can do to support your pastor is, is pray for him. That's biblical in Timothy and Titus and in Thessalonians. We're told to pray for those that are above us, over us as overseers. Um, Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. That doesn't mean that Paul said, follow me in everything that I do. But as I am a follower of Christ, follow those things. And, and, and look, uh, nobody is perfect. The Apostle Paul was not perfect. Uh, but we're all trying to get closer to Christ. And so support by being faithful, support by praying. And uh, that will help other church members as well. So anyway, that's my advertisement for tonight. Um, but if you would turn to Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10. I've said this, that, that I was a youth pastor in Indiana, and I was for seven years. We lived there for nine, and I learned a lot about teenagers in that time frame. And teenagers, they have a way of, well, sometimes it's annoying, and sometimes it's just like, okay, well, that's, that's the thing you do. But they have a way of getting something stuck in your head. I even, I even read something somebody else said, something was stuck in their head today. Uh, sometimes it's a jingle from a commercial uh, even my kids will, will every once in a while, even Riley, she'll say, Liberty, Liberty, Liberty. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, one time she was mad and she wasn't, I don't know why she was mad, but you know, she's little, she gets mad. She was mad at something. She's like, I don't like that. Even though she does, she goes, I don't like that Liberty. And I heard her mutter under her breath. She says, Liberty, Liberty, stupid Liberty. <laughs> And that's just her being her. But I, in my youth group, there was a, a commercial about your credit score. And there was a jingle that went along with that. And my entire youth group memorized the entire song. And on the way to camp, they would sing that thing over and over and over again. And whether you wanted to or not, when you're the bus driver, it's going to get stuck in your head. And those things can be really annoying. And uh, sometimes uh, I, would, I would have a, a song. And actually, John Moore... Uh, I was thinking about him on the on the screen, but uh, John Moore, I would I had a way of getting something stuck in John Moore's head, and I remember him saying this. Man, every time I'm around you, you get something stuck in my head, and we've all had that, right? Where it just it just rolls around, and sometimes it gets to the point where we're like, how can I get this out of my head? Because I'm tired of thinking about this. In this passage, there is something that Paul says that I think is something like that that was in his mind. That it was just a phrase that he said. Maybe it was a, you have a phrase that you say. But let's look at this verse, 
Number one, Romans chapter 10 and verse number one, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now let's read that verse again. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I think that was the phrase that was stuck in his mind, that they might be saved. So that when he saw a fellow Jew on the street, he thought that they might be saved. When he got up in the morning and thought, what am I supposed to do today? What do I need to do today? Where am I going? His thought and everything revolved around that they might be saved. Because as Paul went, he was witnessing to Jews first. He would go to the synagogues and he would, he would preach and he would find Jewish believers and, and, and gather them up in all different kinds of places, by rivers, uh, in people's houses. But that thought rolled through his mind that they might be saved. And that's the kind of attitude, that's the kind of heartbeat that we need to have, that they might be saved. It's not just about us. It's about the lost world. And we need to have that mindset that as we see people in the store, when we see our coworkers, when we see somebody on the street, that our thought process, I wonder where their soul is headed. And I need to live my life that they might be saved. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage today, sometimes our, our flesh gets in the way. gets in the way of understanding. It gets in the way of submitting. It gets in the way of obeying. Lord, I pray that You would use this passage in our hearts that it would be a phrase that, that we think about that goes through our mind. Maybe we put it as a phrase on our refrigerator, on the door as we leave the house, on a 3 by 5 card in our car so that if we see that, we're reminded why we're here. Lord, I ask that you'd help me tonight, that you'd help my wife as she's with the kids, that you'd help all of us as we look at your word and we ask us in Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want us to notice is the very first word, brethren. I think this is Paul's plea. It's his plea to them to say, look, it is my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, but I can't do it alone. That I'm going to need help to accomplish this. One person can't do this, and one person shouldn't do this. I, this is one of the reasons why Jesus, when He left, said, it is expedient for me to go, because if I go, I will send you another Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and He shall be with you, and He shall be in you. And He will be there to lead you and guide you into all truth, and to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That God wants to send His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of God, in us to change us, but also to witness of Christ's work to the world. Amen. And that's the work of God. I mean, if you've ever witnessed to somebody, you know how difficult that can be at times. And sometimes we get tangled over our words. And sometimes we say, I, I did the best I could. That's all God's asking for. Amen. And the Spirit of God can do things that we can't see. Amen. I was talking to somebody earlier tonight, and we just have to trust that God is doing work. I don't know when I preach if God is doing work in your hearts other than the fact that He said so. I can't feel it, and I can't see it. Now, every once in a while, there's a teenager that you can just really tell God is doing a work in their heart. But for the most part, I don't know, but I trust that God's Word is what God says it is, and that God's Spirit is going to do what He says He'll do. And at the end of the night, I just have to trust, is God has God done the work, and are we going to submit to that? 
But this is a plea that he's saying, brethren, I need help. I need help. I read a story about an incident that happened. Uh, there's something that happened on December 26, 2004. And most of us think, I don't know what happened then, but if I start telling you, you'll start to remember, those of you that were alive in 2004. But there was an earthquake off the coast of Indonesia that caused, that caused a tsunami. You remember that? That was a big deal. We think of a tragedy today, and I'm not downplaying any tragedy, but you know, somebody, some, some accident happens and 20 people die, and that's a tragedy. 100 people die, and that's a tragedy. A couple thousand people, and that's a great tragedy. In this earthquake that caused a tsunami, over 250,000 people died. That is hard to grasp in, in, a, in a heartbeat. So I did some research on this. This, this earthquake was a 9.1 to a 9.3, somewhere in there, depending on where you read. But it was the third largest ever recorded. There there's probably greater ones before, but the ones recorded, that's the third largest. Just an unbelievable magnitude of an earthquake underneath the Indian Ocean. Now, those tectonic plates were, were fighting against each other, and finally the pressure gave way, and one of them just popped. And they said that the, the, the energy that exploded at that point was the energy of 23,000 atomic bombs. That's an incredible amount of energy. So that caused... They said if somebody had been there, right at the epicenter in the ocean, and I, I, I wish I could have seen it. I've not been there, but I wish I could have seen it. They said in an instant, there would have been a 600-foot wave burst out of the ocean. 600 feet, just instantaneously, because of the explosion of that earthquake underneath the water. That caused massive waves that when they hit the shorelines, some of them were 100 feet tall which unimaginable devastation, that amount of water. And sometimes it's not the water coming onshore, but as the water comes onshore, what gets sucked out to the ocean afterwards can be just as dangerous as the water coming on. If you don't get out of the way, it will pull you back in. Well, there were several stories that came out of this, and and one in particular, there was a 10-year-old girl on vacation from I don't know where, but she had done a research paper in her school about tsunamis. So when the, uh, when, the, when the tsunami was coming, often what happens in a bay or some other area is the water recedes from the shoreline quickly and at a great distance, leaving just bare sand. And so people were running out where the water had been, and they were picking up fish because it was that fast that it just left the fish there on the sand, picking up big seashells, all kinds of things, because, wow, this is fascinating, and look what I can pick up off the sand. Well, when she saw that water receding, she understood, I don't know how big it is, but this means a tsunami is coming and we need to get out of here. And so she told her family, and her family started to tell others, and approximately 1,500 people were rescued because of her witness and her word. Now, if you were there, and it was your sister or, or daughter or something, and you knew, yes, she did this research. I know what she's saying is true. Would you ignore her or would you take up that cause? Well, absolutely, you'd take up that cause. And you'd be trying to get as many people as you could to safety. Well, that's the idea here. You know, one little girl's not going to get the job done. But spreading that word and saying, hey, everybody, we need to get away 
from the danger that's to come. And I think that's what Paul's saying. His brethren, look, I'm telling you because I can't do it alone. And I only have one life. You know, pastor was showing me some of the area and we were up in Reno and Sparks and and uh, and he showed us this big valley of, I don't know how many thousands of people. Was it 40,000 people? Roughly 40,000 people. And no gospel preaching church that, that I know of. And I look at that and I think, Man, I need I need another life. I need another life to live. I, I could take you to uh, a mission trip that I went on, and, and I'll talk about it a little later, but Madagascar, 25 million people in that small country about the size of Georgia, and there's less than a handful of missionaries. Most of them are in the capital, but there's 25, 000, 25 million people there, most of which don't have any gospel at all. At all. They don't know anything about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if, if they know anything about Him, it's a false religion that's come in and said some things that aren't true. Who's going to tell those people? In doing some research on places where, where there's not many people, I found out that Colombia, uh, South America, 50 million people. And that's not a large country, but that's a lot of people in a small space. And less than 20 missionaries, most of which are in the capital of Bogota, because they are afraid of what may be outside of, of that. Look, what's outside of that is people that are lost and going to hell. No, I, I don't have enough lives. Pastor doesn't have enough lives. We don't have enough lives. But together, we can do something for the Lord. I, I found out that India, India is an amazing country. The amount of people that are oh, well over a billion people there. I think it's 1.3 billion people now. Just incredible. But in India... There are 600,000 villages, there's more than that, but 600,000 villages that don't have one scrap of Bible. There's not 600,000 cities, towns, and villages in the United States. I had to double check that because I was like, how in the world can 600,000 towns, villages, and cities in India that don't have any scrap of Scripture at all? There's over 250 million people in Southeast Asia that don't have any Scripture translated in their language. There's such a great mission field. And we need to look at this world and think that they might be saved. That they might be saved. And Paul is saying, brethren, I can't, I can't do it on my own. But this is God's call to His people. As He's given us the Holy Spirit, He said, go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature beginning at Jerusalem. And it's repeated over and over and over. In John, he said it this way, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. That is the main thing. I know of churches that there's some false doctrine that they teach and, and some, of, some of the things that they teach, I think they just teach them to stir up their people so that they're excited to be in church. But if we are going and winning the loss to Christ, we'll be excited to be in church will be hungry for the Word of God because we'll realize how much we need it and how we're, we're trying to get ammunition in our gospel gun, if you will, to say, look, I need answers for people's questions. And I believe that those answers are in the Word of God. I just may not know where they are. And then when we're winning people to Christ, we're bringing them. We're, we're pulling them in our vehicle and we're taking them to church. And when they're there, we're praying for them. We're hoping that they're growing in the Lord. We're hoping that they're going out and getting some, but this is an effort that God has left the church to do. That's Paul's plea. Notice also he says, brethren, my heart's desire is that they might be saved. It's his heart's desire. It's his passion. You ever wanted something really, really bad? 
when I was probably eight or nine, I really, really wanted this remote control truck called the Hammer. It was bright yellow. It had giant tires on it. It had a wheelie bar because uh, when you hit the turbo on flat ground, it would, it would pop a wheelie. Now, when I say that, maybe young people today think, big deal. You have to understand, I grew up in a generation where the first remote control cars that came out weren't really remote. They had a, a, a wire on them, you know. Even in the commercial, you couldn't see that wire. And so then you get it, and you're like, I have to be four feet from this thing for it even to work, you know, and, and that's not cool. But then when these new remote control cars came out, they were a big deal, and the technology advanced. And man, big tires. I thought, we had a hill beside our house. I thought, man, can this thing, can it go up the hill? What if I set up a ramp? Can it jump a ramp? I mean, what can this, what can this thing do? And so... Man, the commercials for it were great. I, every time I was in Walmart, I'd tell my parents about it. Can, can, can I show you? Can I show you? Because Christmas is coming, and I really wanted that thing for Christmas. And every time I went to Walmart, that's, that's where I would go, to the toy aisle, and there was only one thing I wanted to look at was the hammer. I mean, I'm 40 years old, and I still remember the name of it, okay? And, and you know, Christmas comes. And you're looking at the boxes underneath the tree and they might be wrapped and you're thinking is, you know, when they're smaller than a remote control truck that you want, you're disappointed. You really don't care what's in that package. You want the package that's the size. And then I was hoping, I hope my mom's not just tricking me. I mean, that's cruel, right? I'm going to, I'm going to put a box the same size as the gift that he wants, but it's not going to be what he wants. And I did, I got it. I got it. And probably a couple years later, I, I did, I took it apart because I wanted to build a bigger, faster one with those parts using a weed eater. It was a great idea. I just didn't have a welder, and I knew that if I cut the weed eater, my dad was not going to be happy. But it was a great idea. Can you imagine that torque of a weed eater on a remote control car? Wow! But that was my passion. There's been other things in life that were a passion to me. Things that I prayed about. Every meal, I prayed about that thing. Every time I bowed my head and prayed for anything, I prayed about that thing. Paul was saying, brother, on my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That was something that burned within him. That's why I believe this, that they might be saved, was something that just rolled around, a motto for him. That everywhere he went, that is what he was thinking. And this is the kind of heartbeat that Christ had. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That is why he came to this earth, was to redeem us. He came to die for us. And Paul's passion was, I would do this. Notice chapter 9 and verse 1. Paul says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. He's saying, look. I'm telling you the truth, and I'm going to say something strong, but I want you to know I'm telling you the truth. The Holy Spirit bears me witness. My conscience bears me witness that this is absolutely 100% true. Verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Great heaviness and continual sorrow. Do you have great heaviness and continual sorrow for someone in your life that needs to be saved? If you don't, you can ask the Lord and He'll give that to you because that's what He has. And then He says in verse 3, For I could wish that myself were accursed, literally separated from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
He says, that's how strong my desire is, that I would be willing to be separated from Christ. I'm sorry, I don't have that kind of a burden. That I would give up my salvation? That's a burden that that I'd be scared to say that I would want. Now, fortunately, I know that I cannot lose it because he keeps it. 1 Peter 1.5, we are kept by the power of God, not my power, and that no man is able to pluck me out of the Father's hand, not even myself. But that was Paul's passion. That was his greatest desire. Yeah, there's so many things that, that I would like that are desires, and that if I'm not careful, they can take that place of a greater desire than to see somebody saved. I was in Shields. He took his pastor, took his Shields. I was in the first Shields I've ever been in, I think, was in was in Denver and that or maybe it was Colorado Springs. It was Colorado Springs and it was just a couple weeks ago. And I and I went up into the hunting section and there's these crossbows. Anybody know what a raven crossbow is? You know what a raven crossbow is? Whoa, they're nice. And they've got one now, 505 feet per second. And and it's only about this wide before it's cocked and it's only about this long which normal crossbows are like beastly in their size and maybe not their performance 505 feet per second is incredible when it comes to an arrow and they say and the guy that showed me i got to shoot it once the guy that showed me he said he said look they say you can hit a quarter of your 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 shot pattern in a quarter at 100 yards and he's like it's true he's like i've done it it's it's unbelievable that's with a crossbow to be able to shoot something at 100 yards Wow, but it's 3,000 bucks, okay? <laughs> so, but I'm telling you, we all have desires. I've got friends that they love boats. I mean, boats, and they, you know, there's always another boat, right? There's always another truck. There's always another vehicle. There's always another, always another phone, right? There's always another, you name it. And that is our flesh. And some of these things aren't wrong to have goals or maybe desires or things like that. But we have to be careful that the things that matter to us are things that aren't going to matter in three years. You know that phone? Big deal. In three years, you're going to be wanting another one. A vehicle? You might still be happy, but there's something else going to catch your eye. There's always something that's there. But if we have souls at our forefront, we have something that we're looking at that lasts for eternity. And that person is going to spend somewhere forever. Forever. And the people I believe that need to think that the most are Christians. Are are your values eternal values or temporal values? His passion. This is God's passion. In 2 Peter 2.9, we're told that He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God's desire is. It was Paul's passion. It was his plea. And it was his prayer. Notice in verse number one again, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is. I doubt very much that he just prayed about this once a week. Prayed about it a lot. Do you have people on your prayer list that are unsaved that you pray for consistently? You should. And, And pray for them until they get saved. Just keep praying for them. I don't believe that anybody in here that's saved got saved without anybody praying for you. Somebody somewhere was praying for you. And and I don't always know how that works, but I just believe that because God answers prayer. 
when I was a freshman in college, I, I had the, the fortunate benefit of being able to go to a Bible college. Everything that the college does is ministry related. Every major is ministry related, which meant that all of my roommates were, were going towards the ministry. And uh, I was also fortunate enough to have six roommates. I think that's right. Six, there were seven of us in the room because there were eight bunks and I think it was one, one bed open. And, and some people think, man, that's a lot of people in one room. Yes, it was. But we had, we had a riot. Uh, I'll have to tell you later who was in that room. But we had a riot. So much so that I can easily say at least three nights every week that I was laughing hysterically and so were other people in the room. It was just that way. We had a we had a chemistry. People would come. There was a chair. People would come and they would come and sit in our room just to watch because it was just nuts in that room. Um, guys from all over the country, guys with, you know, guys from out of the country, um, guys that grew up on the streets fighting, guys that grew up, you know, I don't know, sewing cross-stitch. I, I don't know, but it was just a... It was a wild, wild room. But one of my roommates, it's Rafael Cordero, freshman year, and uh, we had this thing on Thursday nights where we had room prayer. We had, we had a, a, a devotions of the dorm every night, but Thursday night was just the room. And so typically in those room prayer times, people would give a prayer request that they may not give in other times because it was very personal. I mean, you live with these guys. And so one of them, my friend Raphael, he, uh, he was praying for his dad to be saved and had been praying for his dad to be saved. And so that was a prayer request. But I noticed something that I just realized he doesn't know that I tell this story. <laughs> that every night, so my bed was on this wall and I had a closet behind mine and his bed was on this wall and there was an outside staircase that went down and there was a window uh, right here beside their bed. And he was in upper bunk and I was in upper bunk. And everybody would lay down, the lights would go out because we had strict rules like that. We had a lights out policy. And he would lay down and in about 30 seconds after the lights went out, he would turn over and he'd get on his knees. What do you think he was doing? Yeah, we all know what he was doing. And we know who he was praying for. He's praying for his dad. And I found out that his brother and sister were, were praying, and at least one, if not both of them, would fast once a week. And it was years and years and years and years. Graduated college, was working in a ministry. I was on a Christmas vacation, and I got a text message from Raphael. And it was a picture of his dad getting baptized because earlier that month, maybe it was that week, he was sitting in a service, as he sat with his daughter many, many times, and he's heard the gospel so many times, and he was sitting there, and he finally he just, I don't even think the preacher had started preaching yet, and he tapped his daughter on the shoulder and says, can we talk? And she said, yeah, and they went and talked, and, and she led him to the Lord. And so following the Lord and showing what had happened in his heart, he was baptized. You know, I look at that and I think, I got to be a part of that because I had been praying for him. And everybody that had prayed for him felt like a part. Everybody across the country that had ever prayed for him rejoiced, even if it had been decades. And now he's growing and growing in the Lord. He's actually moved to Brazil where, where he, he was born. But you can be a part of that when you're praying for someone. When they are saved, everybody rejoices. Now I've got a prayer list of, of several people that I'm praying for to be saved. 
And man, I can't wait for some of these people to get saved. I'm excited for them to get saved. And I hope they get saved before it's too late. And Paul is saying, look, this is who I pray for. I pray for my people that they would be saved. I'm sure there was other people besides Israelites because Paul was a missionary to all kinds of people. He says that the gospel is to the Jew and the Greek, to the Israelite and to the barbarian, that he is a debtor to preach the gospel to all of them. But it was his continual prayer. Something he said, I, I can't stop thinking about. This is what we as Christians, it's a weapon that we have at our disposal that is God's power that we can pray, God, I may not be around them, but can you get the gospel to them somehow? Lord, when, the, when they hear the word of God, can you work in their heart in a, in a special way that I, that I can't do? God, would you just do things in the, in the unseen times? And, 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 and God, I'm going to trust that you are doing a work in their heart that, that I can't see. And, and maybe they're battling it. And I just don't know. But God, help me to say the right things. And I believe this too. Somebody said this when I was in college. And, and man, it stuck with me. Don't pray about something that you're not willing to put feet to. That you're not willing to be a part of. Don't pray that somebody be saved if you're not willing to witness to them. Don't, don't pray that, that God would provide for somebody if you're not going to help them. Don't pray that, that somebody would change in some way if you're not willing to be a part of that because you're not really willing. You're not really willing to do anything. You want somebody else to do it. But when you pray, Lord, help me when, when I have opportunities to just encourage them in the Lord, to just tell them I'm praying for them, to take the opportunities to tell them about Christ. It was Paul's prayer. And then it was Paul's preaching as well. I could say it was his program because everywhere Paul went, Paul did the same things. Paul was a, an apostle. He did missions work. He would go to city to city and place to place. And when, when he would go where he believed God wanted him to go, he would do the same things. And he would go to synagogues. He would find the Jewish people. And he would give them the gospel. And the gospel would, would do what God does with the gospel. It would save people. And he would, he would go out in all kinds of places and give the gospel. But this is what he said. He, he tells it right here. Look at verse 2. He says, For I bear them record. He's talking about the Jews. He says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. There are a lot of people in this world that have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They want to worship God. We, we talked about Cornelius on Sunday. He was giving alms. He was praying, but he didn't have a relationship with the true God. There are all kinds of people across this world that have a zeal of God, but it's not according to knowledge. And that's why we need to be giving the gospel so that they can know. And he said, my people who hold the prophets... And they hold the law. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And then he continues. He says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. He says, look, they are going about to establish their own righteousness. They're trying to look good before God by all the things that they do. So they might, they might give and, and try to please God by their giving. They, they might serve their neighbor and, and they might love one another as, as the law had actually told them to do. And, and they might actually try to love God. But it's just their own righteousness. And here's the problem with that. There is a lot of religions that push people to do good things. And there are a lot of people that believe as long as they're good outweighs their bad. But here's the problem with that. It doesn't deal with sin. 
you're still a sinner before God. And the Bible says very clearly, the wages of sin is death. Is death. How are you going to deal with sin? How are you going to get rid of your sin? How is God going to forgive you of your sin outside of how He said it? And He told us several times, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. Amen. In fact, we're told in the book of Romans, chapter 4, that Abraham, it wasn't works, because when we work for it, it actually adds to our debt. What are you going to do with your sin? And he's saying they're not dealing with their sin. They're just doing good things. And then he continues. He says, verse 4, this is the good news. For Christ is the end of the law. He is the completion, if you will, of the law for righteousness to them that believe. So here's the end of that. You can't work for righteousness. You can't earn it. You can only get it if it's Christ's by believing. This is John 1.12, but as many as received him, they shall become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. By believing on the name of Christ, we receive the sonship, we receive the righteousness of Christ. God, when he looks at me, does not see my good. He sees the good of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see my right things. He sees the right things of Jesus Christ. We are clothed, if we're believers, in the righteousness of Christ. And he's saying, look, all these Jewish people, they're trying to keep the law. They're trying to be so perfect, but it's not doing them any good because they're still not dealing with their sin. But if Christ, if they had Christ in their life, he fixes that because he died for them. That's what the cross means. The wages of sin is death. That's Christ. He died in our place. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's the resurrection. That's why he rose from the dead, to be able to give us new life. This is exactly what he told Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a righteous one in their eyes. But Jesus told him, Nicodemus, you're a good guy, but you must be born again. You've got to have new life. That new life only comes from Christ. It only comes because of the resurrection. And he's saying, look, this is what I'm telling them, is that their works aren't getting them to heaven. Their goodness, they could be great people, but it doesn't get them to heaven because they haven't dealt with sin, but Christ did deal with sin. So how do I receive that? And he says that in verse 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. Verse 11, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. See, she's not ashamed. She's not ashamed. Verse 12, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. And one of my favorite verses is verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You believe what He did? Then call on His name. Lord, I believe what You did. I believe that You died on a cross for me. I believe that You rose again. And because of that, I can be forgiven. I can be more than forgiven. I can be made right in Your eyes. That's called justification. I can be righteous. And I don't have to do anything to earn it. You gave it to me. And Paul said, this is what I'm telling them, and this is what we can tell them, and it's all right here. And God will change their life. And he goes on, and and we have to see it. Verse 14, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? We could, we could rephrase that. 
and be just to the text by saying, how shall they hear without a proclaimer, without a speaker, somebody that tells them? That's a question that every one of us needs to ask. When we look around our community and we think the thought that they might be saved, we need to think this thought. How do they hear without a speaker? How do they hear unless I tell them? So my missions trip to Madagascar, I can't tell you the whole thing. It it, it takes way too long to not leave out any of the details. But it was God's pointing us in that direction based upon the thought that these people don't have the gospel. So let's go to a place there that no missionary is near, that no missionary is going to, that doesn't have any established ministry. They don't have the gospel. We're going to get there. Well, we picked a place. We prayed for it. God very clearly pointed that out in in really a miraculous way that this was the area. Uh, Long story short, we didn't even know how we were going to get there. We planned for over a year. How are we going to get out to there once we get to the country? We landed in country and did not know how we were going to get there. Within six hours, God showed us the way. It was a long way, but it was the way. Three days, 220 miles. So that'll tell you a little bit about travel there. But when we were planning the trip, there were several things that started coming up. Number one, we heard that there was Islamic jihadists there, that they're not going to be happy that we're there. We knew there was a lot of witchcraft, and they might not be happy that we're there. Um, we, the, the more we learned, the more dangerous it looked. And what we planned was, we planned. I, we bought tents, we took tents with us. We planned to stay in tents when we were there, uh, just because, it. I mean, it's out, you can think jungle, you can think whatever you want, and you're going to be accurate, just, just huts. And so... So we were thinking that, but we, we found out from the president of the district through our interpreter uh, back to the U.S. that he said, it's not safe for you to stay in tents. And so I'm like, well, what are we going to do? But it, was, it, was beca- it became very dangerous. And so um, I wasn't telling my wife all the dangerous thing because I didn't want her to worry about it. And, and, and I didn't need her to worry about it. But what I did do was I, I wrote letters to each one of my daughters and to my wife, and I you know, was putting them in an envelope. It took me, I will say this, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It, it was harder than going, was writing those letters. Um, it, I couldn't write them all at one time. I just, I just emotionally, I, I couldn't finish. And one day, I remember sitting in my office, and I was writing a letter to my daughters, and this thought hit me. Maybe, it's, maybe I'm pushing the envelope too much. Maybe I shouldn't go because it's, it's dangerous. And God has a way of speaking to us in ways that we cannot argue. Uh, I mean, it's just impossible to argue. And as I thought that, I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't go. This is, this is the thought that God put in my mind. He said, if your daughters were there in that village and didn't have the gospel, would you stay? And I said, that's not fair. It's not fair. Because there's nothing that would stop me. I'd start swimming as soon as I could get to the ocean. There's nothing that's going to stop me. And God said, somebody's daughters are there. Somebody's kids are in that village. And you're going to stay here because it's dangerous? And I was like, I can't argue with that. You know, somebody's daughters are in Fernley. Fallon in a community, somebody's kids, somebody's sister, 
somebody's mom, somebody's cousin, somebody's loved one. And God loves them more than we understand. And God has given us the task of telling them about His Son so that they could be saved. Would you take that up? Would you have that as your motto that they might be saved? With your heads bowed and eyes closed. My first question is this. Have you, have you dealt with your sin? Have you brought it before God and said, God, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. Would you please forgive me and save me? How many of you would say by the upper east hand, Preacher, I know that that's me. I know that I'm saved. I know that I've gone to God with my sin and I've asked Him to forgive me and, I've, and save me. If that's you, would you raise your hand so that I can see it all across the auditorium? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Maybe you'd say, Preacher, that's not me. I've not dealt with my sin, but I see that Jesus Christ did. And I'd like for Him to pay my penalty tonight. I'd like for Him to save my soul. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to say thank you for that hand. Anybody at all? That's me, preacher. Please pray for me. I need to be saved tonight. Anybody at all? Christian, I know there's things that can get in our minds as distractions and desires. But would you ask the Lord tonight, Lord, make my heart beat one that says that they might be saved. Lord, help me willing to be embarrassed. Help me willing to talk to somebody that maybe they're going to hate me for it, but I, but I want to share with love the gospel to them. Lord, I need to be a better witness. I mean, that's your heartbeat. Would you do this? Would you commit that you'll do your best? You'll do your best to witness to at least one person a week. One person a week. You'd say, preacher, I can make that commitment. I'll do my best to witness to one person a week. If that's you, would you raise your hand anywhere in the auditorium? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It may be difficult. It may start with just a tract. Handing somebody a tract. You can do that. It might start with, look, what can I pray for you about? Maybe it's, you know, let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. Let me tell you how God changed my life. And that's a witness. Let me share a verse with you today. And ask God, God, loose my tongue. Show me. Teach me. Use me. But Lord, make me a witness. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I don't know what commitment you have, but would you please stand to your feet with me? And as the hymn of invitation begins to play, as you're standing to your feet, would you make that commitment to the Lord? Here or there, it's just a prayer. Lord, I, I want that heartbeat. I want to see people like you see them. I want to care about them more than I care about myself. I want... I want to see them for a soul that's going to spend somewhere in eternity. Lord, help me live for that. 